1: My guest on today's podcast is Mark Burke. Mark is the founder of Timothy Financial Council, an advisory firm that does purely hourly financial planning for hundreds of clients in the Chicago area. What's unique about Mark's practice, though, is that while hourly financial planning is usually characterized as purely transactional business for less affluent middle market clients that can't be scaled effectively, Mark's firm actually did a whopping $1.4 million of hourly financial planning fees last year across a team of five advisors and two support staff, with 75% of the firm's clients as recurring hourly clients. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Mark structures the hourly fee model at Timothy Financial with a, a series of five levels of service based on complexity and hourly rates that vary from $280 to $400 an hour, depending on which advisor is serving the client why he publishes all of the details about his fees and service tiers on his website for clients to see before ever talking to him, and how doing so has led to a whopping 83% close rate on his qualified prospects last year. We also talk about some of the myths of the hourly model, including how Mark has been able to successfully scale the reach of the firm, why he believes that firms interested in doing hourly planning should only do hourly work to focus on efficiencies, how he's been able to drive the growth of the firm because so few other advisors are effective at doing hourly financial planning for clients, the tremendous opportunity of building an hourly model precisely because so few advisors do it well, and why yet most advisors who start out still fail at the hourly model despite the opportunity. And be certain to listen to the end where Mark talks about how he decided to come up with the name Timothy Financial Council instead of just naming the firm Berg Financial Council after himself. And why 17 years later, his decision not to name the firm after himself has actually helped him to scale it up with other advisors that have come on board. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Mark Berg. Welcome, Mark Berg, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Thanks, Michael. Glad to be here.
1: I'm I'm looking forward to having you on the podcast today because you are running what to me at least is is the the largest advisory firm that i i know that is doing purely standalone hourly business i know you you guys are doing over a million dollars of revenue you've got five or six advisors under the umbrella including you all all doing hourly planning in a world where you know i continue to hear and and i suspect you have as well like oh, you can't build a big hourly planning practice. It's not scalable. It's not profitable. You can't make any money at it. And here you are with more than a million dollars of revenue and half a dozen advisors <laughs> doing it and clearly executing it. So I'm I'm excited to have you on the podcast today and, and maybe bust a couple of myths around hourly planning as a, as a business model. And, and just delving into like, how do you build an hourly practice that generates that much revenue. Like just how do you even get enough clients to do enough billable hours to build a practice that, that gets to that size. So I'm I'm really appreciative that you're you're joining us on the podcast today.
2: Wow, well, I'm 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 really looking forward to it. It's a topic I'm passionate about. So I love to to share the story.
1: So maybe just as a starting point, why don't you tell us a little bit about the advisory firm as it exists today? Like just paint us a little bit of a picture of how you would explain, you know, who you guys are and what you do.
2: Sure. So we are a fee-only, hourly-only financial planning firm. Our main office is here in Wheaton, Illinois, which is about 20 miles west of Chicago. And we also have a Chicago office. And we serve just over 400 clients, between 400 and 450 clients in a given year and, and growing. As far as our my team is, is considered, we, we have five advisors that are, are face-to-face advisors, meaning working directly with clients. We have one person who just joined us last year, who is more in a support role, probably traditionally considered a paraplanner, but certainly has the capability to move in, into the advisor role. And then one person that basically keeps us in line and manages the office.
1: So you said about 400 clients. And you know, I know, I know you guys are North of a million dollars of revenue now, so like can I ask you like what was what was revenue for you guys last year like relative to serving about four hundred clients what was the what was the revenue base from that
2: yeah we we earned just under one point four million dollars in twenty seventeen that was about a i think it was a seventeen or eighteen percent increase over the prior year
1: oh and and that's and just be clear that's that's all hourly. That's 100%
2: hourly. 100% hourly. I would say about three quarters, right around 75% of that is what we would call recurring clients. So clients that we've served in prior years who are back for view or to work through a specific issue that they may have. And then a quarter of that revenue is from brand new clients in in this case, 2017.
1: So I've got a couple of questions about that, particularly around recurring clients. But I'm I'm just trying to sort of break this down in my head really fast. So 1.4 million dollars of revenue, about 400 clients that you served last year. It's so like I'm I'm doing the envelope math here. That's about 3,500 dollars per client. So like you're you're not just meeting with people for an hour or two and and you know. Here's a bit of hourly advice and, and off you go on your way. Like your your average engagement for a client is, is much deeper and longer than just saying like the fact that you're working with them hourly doesn't mean they're typically one
2: hour engagements. Actually, the answer is yes and no. So we don't have any minimum as it relates to the client themselves or or, our service. So we have some individuals who come to us and we call it our start the clock where they come in, they have a specific topic or issue they'd like to talk through. Let's say it took 45 minutes, they get a 45 minute bill. They took an hour and 27 minutes, they get an hour and 27 minutes. So it is that simple. We literally just track our time by the minute. But then on, on the other hand, we have clients that probably get into this maybe a little bit later that are on the higher level of complexity. We call them level four or especially level five clients where we can send significant time with them. My, my largest client last year, we billed Oh, I think it was right around eighty five, ninety thousand dollars 90000 because that's the amount of time they needed and a, a significant net worth, significant issues. And we had to work through those issues.
1: So you talked about, so I kind of get start the clock service, I guess, in, in the context of what I was maybe framing earlier, that's perhaps what, what at least some advisors would call the the classic hourly business, right? Like, come in, ask us some questions. I'll bill you by the hour. Or as you said, like you know, broken all the way down to the minute, you pay for the time, bring your dollars. I'll lay some knowledge and wisdom on you off. We go on our merry way. But then you said you, you've got yeah. you, more complex client needs that you, you termed as level four and level five clients. So can you maybe talk a little bit about what these, what these levels are and how you, how you think about this?
2: Yeah, so a level four client will typically be a high-level corporate executive having you know, pretty substantial stock option, RSU deferred comp planning needs where we have to we have to get in pretty deep with them to help them with their tax planning, cash flow planning, how that translates into all the other areas of their their personal financial situation. So that's that's a typical level for also some small business owners, but really on the smaller end of the small business, whether it's sole proprietor, a few employees, that would all fit in a, in a level four. Level one, two, three, and four are are all kind of incremental levels of complexity. So as you go up in number, you're 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 seeing more and more complex situations. More complex typically means more time. More time is higher bill. So it it just follows a pretty normal path. The level four to a level five is really a leap. So instead of incremental it 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 is exponential often where instead of those situations you know we may be working with the CEO of a publicly traded company or a small business owner that you know their business is worth twenty million dollars or a hundred million dollars or anywhere in between or higher where we're dealing with succession issues, sale issues, key man issues, but also a lot of personal planning issues. And so it can it can get very involved depending on the client's desire and and we really the client retains control and we're there to to come alongside them and help advise them in the areas that they they seek.
1: So when you talk about these different tiers, level One, two, three, four, five. Like, does that mean they actually all get billed at at different rates? Like, hey, you you've you've got a level one problem, so we're only going to bill you one hundred and fifty dollars an hour. But if you've got a level four problem, we're going to bill you three hundred dollars an hour. Or is it more like a a scope kind of thing? Like, a level one you know level one problems mean you probably only have to work with us for five to ten hours, but level four problems mean you're going to have to work with us for like twenty or thirty hours.
2: It's it is more the latter, meaning it's it's the complexity translates into the amount of time and and so that creates the cost. But there is some very modest distinctions as far as our hourly rate. So we do have a, a service for people in their twenties, early thirties that don't really need comprehensive planning quite yet. They're They're more kind of issue specific, a lot of transition going on. And because they're working with an advisor and not really getting the advantage of our team, because it's an in-meeting as you go planning, we charge a little bit lower hourly rate than our standard rate. Level one through level four is all at our firm rate, which is 280 an hour. Level five is 400 an hour. So you can see there's a pretty big leap from one through four to five. And there's, there's a couple of reasons behind that. One, as, as we already talked, there's, there's a much higher level of complexity at the level five than any other area. But when we, when we came up with that distinction of time, it was really driven by necessity. So at that time, which is about five years ago, from a capacity standpoint, I was the only one working with level five. My partner Han was supporting me, but it was just becoming a bit burdening. And 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 partly because we 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 kept having people come in and and is a typical problem, you know, once they find out you're the founder, they want to work with you. And if if you're all the same rate, why wouldn't you, you know, want to work. The most experienced person. So so you
1: kind of tiered it apart really to, to sort of create like a, well, maybe that's the wrong term for but like a, a financial disincentive for everyone wanting to just work with you because you're the founder and owner and head honcho guy. Like, okay, if you want Mark, that's fine. Here's what it costs and it's more than everybody else. Now, who do you really want to work with and, and give them a the choice? Right,
2: right, and it, it's really helped us quite a bit to to narrow that funnel because uh, we still, even to this day, get calls and say, "Well, I was referred to you, so I want to meet with you and I want to work with you," and so we can very honestly go into that initial part of the relationship and say, "Well." you're welcome to work with me, but let me tell you kind of the big picture of how we work. We work as a team. All of our fingerprints are all over the planning. You're going to get the same result either way. Would you rather be charged $400 an hour for the entire plan or 280 an hour? Because really that decision will help determine who you're face to face with. And what we found is 90% 90% of people who initially come to me decide, well, if you think they're good enough and you're working as a team, that that's good enough for me. And it's, 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 it's their decision to do the the handoff for, for those that say, well, I don't really care. $400 an hour is, is fine. It's not a big deal. Well, they're probably level five anyway. <laughs> so, so that's why I'm
1: struck even just with the, with the numbers. I feel like a lot of people, when they talk about hourly planning, you know the most common rates I hear thrown around are like one hundred and fifty to two hundred dollars an hour, occasionally to dollars, two hundred fifty dollars an hour, and you're sitting at at two hundred and eighty to four hundred dollars an hour. So, so can can you talk about that a, a little bit? Like, is that just a function of hey, you're in Chicago and it's a big city, so people pay these ra- like people just pay these rates because this is the going rate, or is there something more about like what you guys are doing or how you're positioning it, that you're commanding 280 to 400 when it seems like a lot of other hourly advisors are more like 150 to 200?
2: Yeah, that's a fair question. there's a couple of different ways to answer that one, one way I would answer it is people are undervaluing their own value. And that to me is the number one issue that, creates challenges for for other hourly practitioners is they don't value their own time. And I feel like financial planning is one of the most valuable things out there, period, to help individuals. And frankly, I feel at $400 an hour, they're getting a bargain. And even more so working with my colleagues at, at $280 an hour. And as I talk to Tracy Beckus, who's my coach, Angie Herbers, who I connect with a reasonable amount, they're both pushing me in in the other direction. Angie, in a recent conversation, said, you should be at $520 an hour. And I, I chose not to go in that direction. But just to say, you know, some of the, the brighter minds out there from a business consulting who work on an hourly basis also. They understand that that time value proposition or supporting that. The other thing that I would say is if you ask the average hourly practitioner, are you having trouble finding business? Are you only filling a couple of days a week? To a person, at least from my experience, it's the absolute opposite. They cannot they cannot keep up with the amount of work that's coming in. And they're working six, six and a half days a week, putting in 12 hour days, which I personally have no interest in in doing either of those. So it's creating its own issue. And so we've used price as part of our metric to keep our lives in check and to be able to live a balanced life rather than an out-of-control life. So we use the price, the other factor, which helps us make sure that we're we're in the market in the right ballpark as far as our, our fee is concerned is our close rate. So we track with prospects how many of them become clients. And as long as we're north of 80%, we feel like, okay, we, we must be pricing at least at a good level. And if we're over 90%, well, we're probably underpricing, meaning we're undervaluing our service. So I, I don't think, honestly, it has anything to do with the Chicago office.
1: So you're, I just even got to pause there. It's like you're, you're charging $280 to $400 an hour with an 80 plus percent close rate on people who come in.
2: Yes. Yeah. So we have about a 15 minute when they first contact us, a 15 minute phone call just to see what they're looking for is just at the at the at the base level. We give them a, a sense of what the cost could and be. That's a free
1: that's a free call. Oh they're yeah. Not, yeah, they're absolutely. not on the they're not on the because well, I know you have got your like start the clock service. They're, they're not on the clock <laughs> yet. That's an actual. They're not on the clock okay. yet.
2: Yeah. Well, and they're actually not even a prospect yet they're just an inquiry. Okay. And and our goal is to see are they a prospect? Because if they're calling saying, "Hey, I'm looking for somebody to manage my assets." Oh, well, that's not us. Let us help you find somebody that might be a better fit. Or, you know, I'm in debt over my ears and I'm looking for somebody to wave a magic wand and and take it all away. Well, sorry, that's not us either. So, Okay.
1: So the distinction for you between an inquiry and a prospect is in essence like a A prospect, I'm I'm going back to my old early sales days, like a prospect is a qualified prospect, like someone who is interested in the actual services you provide and has the financial wherewithal to pay you. So like they, they could legitimately be working with you. Now it's just a question of whether they will.
2: And I might take it one step further, at least as far as our definition is concerned, and are willing to meet face to face, or at least not—I shouldn't say face to face, but at least have an extended conversation related to their personal finance as well as what we do from a service perspective. That connotes a prospect for okay. us.
1: And 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 does that mean like sort of by definition around the face to face framing? Like you don't do any of this work with clients. Virtually across the country, like your clientele is pretty much all Chicagoland metropolitan area. So you can meet with them face to face.
2: Yeah, that's actually why I paused because actually we have quite a few okay. clients that are from out of state. So I use the term generically of face-to-face. It
1: could be like a video face-to-face.
2: Video. Yeah, we do we do extensive video conferencing and, and meeting presentation with clients, even clients here in Illinois who just don't want to battle the snow. We'll just do it virtually. It's not, not an issue at all okay. for us.
1: So you've got this very high close rate, I guess, of like, this would, these would be actual prospects. So you've, you've affirmed that they're qualified and then you have to move forward to see, but are they actually going to pay you 280 to $400 an hour? That's the group that's got a, an 80% close rate of moving through. Yes. Yeah. Last year was 83%. Okay. So I, I don't, I don't even know where you're going. Like, how do I, how do, how do you sell 280 to $400 an hour? Like, what is that, what does that conversation look like? I mean, I'm imagining a few people that probably literally say, like, I don't even pay my accountant that much or I don't even pay my lawyer that much. You're how much and you do what for me exactly? Like how, how do you, how do you make this pitch of what's the value of what you guys do at 280 to $400 an hour?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And we, we actually, Honestly, don't face that question all that often. The people, in fact, I I was looking at an email that I got this morning when I came in from a prospective client and he basically said, or I should say an inquiry at this point, but just based on what he wrote, I think he would fit. He gave me his whole profile situation, his net worth, how it's broken out, what his issues are. And he just said, you know, kind of one of the bottom sentence was not clear to me where I would fit in your service level continuum, but we can talk about that when we meet. So we don't do a whole lot of marketing, but what we do do is Always push people towards our website because if you go to our website, it is very transparent. We have our hourly rate there. We have our levels. We have fee structure. So by the time the prospect calls us or emails us, A lot of those issues are already dealt with. And if they weren't dealt with, then we address them in that 15 minutes because we don't want to get into the situation with, oh, I expected the $250 Vanguard financial plan or that you did it free and somehow got paid some other way. We don't want to deal with that. We want to make sure upfront everybody's on the same page. So, So the value proposition is really laid out on our website very clearly or at least we hope or that's what we've been to- told by our prospective clients well
1: yeah and I, I i'm fascinated by the way that you guys present this on your website so what you will we'll actually include some links in the show notes as well for people who are listening and want to go go check this out so this is episode 64 of the podcast so if you go to kitsis.com slash 64 you can go to the episode and, and scroll down to the the resources mentioned in this podcast and we'll We'll have some links out because I, I am kind of fascinated by it. like you know, right there, like your homepage goes straight to your fees page and your fees page has this interesting layout that says essentially estimate your cost level one, two, three, four, five, you know, level one's typically 2800 to $4,000, you know, parentheses $280 an hour. And then you say the number of hours, you know level two is usually up to five grand, level four could be seven to 11,000, level five is 16,000 plus and this $400 hourly rate. And like, it's all right there with this little circular meter gauge that says, you know, low complexity, level one, moderate complexity, level three, high complexity, level five. And then you can drill down even further off that page. And you've got literally like just a giant matrix style thing of like, five columns for level one, two, three, four, five, and every possible service you could do as an advisor and which ones are included at which tiers based on, on complexity. Like, I think it's, it's a really interesting way to lay out in such granular detail, like for all those people that say, well, you know, what am I really going to get from my financial planning? Like, I'm sure you have to reinforce some of that in the meeting, but it seems like you're, you're not even actually selling that in the meeting. You're selling that on the website. So frankly, the, the people who might have not closed with other advisors, they, they don't even show up as inquiries and prospects for you because they probably just see it on your website and like, oh man, I'm not paying that guy $280 an hour. So <laughs> no, no skin off your back. They literally don't even take a one minute phone call because they just see the website, don't like it and move on. So your, your, your website basically screens out all the non-qualified people and just serves up the ones that are actually interested.
2: Yeah, it, it it does. And, you know, again, it goes back to that concept that time is our most valuable, most precious asset that we have. And that's true of any advisor, not just somebody who charges by the hour, but we happen to actually track our time. When well, yeah, you're in the
1: time sales business, you really track your time.
2: Yeah, we do. We do. And so for us, you know, while we're we love to help people, even if we're not the right fit, you know, if we can point them in the right direction, that's great. But as you pointed out, our website does do a a fairly thorough job of of answering some of those initial questions that may disqualify, they may disqualify themselves. So we're not disqualifying them. We're not saying we won't work with you if you don't have a million dollars or earn X or whatever. We have no problem with that. And again, we have the start the clock. So that's still an option for just about for the,
1: for the people who say like, yeah, yeah. I I don't know that I was ready to do this. You know, level one starts at $2,800 tier. Your, your response, like no problem. We can, well, I guess you literally says on your website, right? Like not looking for comprehensive advice, Learn about our start the clock hourly service, and, and they can draw right exactly.
2: Through. Yeah, for us, you know, even though people often will presume, well, you probably over time want to work with more level four and level five clients, and you know, really shrink down that level one, level two, or even do away with the hourly. Well, it depends on what your definition of success is, and our definition is not driven by revenues. Our definition is driven by clients served. That is the success. That is the value. That is what we get excited about as a firm is one more family, one more individual impacted that are making better decisions for their personal financial situation. That is our success. So for us to do away with a start the clock or level one or next gen would completely go against our definition of success. Now, from a you know, you talk to to Tracy, and Tracy's going to say, "Well, yeah, you want to work with fewer clients with you know larger revenues, and that makes sense if that's your your success metric." And yeah. it's just not ours.
1: Well, and and you know, at the at the same time, like from the building a business perspective. So, I mean, at the end of the day, like your your hourly rate for level one is two hundred eighty dollars an hour, and your hourly rate for level four is two hundred eighty dollars an hour. So the the only difference is you know like the client's going to pay the same for the time. It's just a matter of what sized chunk of hours they're buying just based on how much they need. So, you know, at, at the granted it it maybe takes a little bit more work to find, you know, 3 level 1 clients instead of one level 4 client cuz that's about how the hours convert on your on your system, but if you've got a website that's bringing clients anyways like if at the end of the day you're going to get to charge $280 an hour for 40 hours of work, who cares whether it's three level ones or one level four from the business perspective? Like you're going to drive the same revenue and make the same profits and you've got the clients coming in. Now it's just a matter of do you have the the planners to do all the work, which you, you do because you've got four or five of them now. I mean, I guess it's one thing when it gets to your services, because you charge differently for yours because you're at four hundred dollars an hour because there's only one of you. But you know, it strikes me. I mean, for the rest of them, like there really isn't a difference in the rates here. It's just different people buy different packages of hours based on what they want and they need. And the more people you serve, the less you have to sell large chunks of time, because you can just spell sell fewer or greater number of small chunks of time and still generate the same revenue.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think either way can work the same from a revenue standpoint. But again, one of the reasons why I I got into this approach to doing financial planning in the first place was to serve people. I I felt that there was a, a massive gap in the industry that was was frankly just not being filled. And so it would go against my personal principles as to why I left a great firm and started this firm. If I decided to close my practice or only work with you know a few large clients, you know this is that's really that's really the driving force of why we exist.
1: I want to circle back to this this comment you made earlier that of the one point four million dollars of hourly revenue, about seventy five percent of it was from recurring clients and twenty five percent of it was from new so can you talk to us a little bit more about recurring clients and 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 what's going on there or is this like you have people on basically in an, an like annual retainer structure you just bill them hourly is this just you figure out how to get people to keep coming back for regular hourly services like what's what's going on that, that you've got such a volume of recurring hourly revenue cuz so i feel like for a lot of us those are like those are self that's a self-contradicting term like you're supposed to be hourly or recurring not re- not recurring hourly so, so talk to us about what, what yeah, that is for you. Yeah,
2: so. well, well, as as I think any financial planner would attest to, and would desire in in any connection with a client, is they want to build relationship, and and we're the same. You know, we want to create a value where they see the value of regular ongoing connection to help them as their lives continue to change, as things change around them that are outside of that control, that we're, we're keeping track with them to make sure that they're working towards the goals that are important to them. So when we go into an engagement, we go in with the assumption that they want to be long term clients, they just happen to want to get charged a little differently in a different approach than others out there. And it's not a right or wrong, like retainer's better than hourly or hourly is better than AUM. It's just a different way. And different people have different, you know, in, in their mind how they want to be charged. And and for some, and obviously the people that are attracted to to our revenue model, they like that they pay for exactly what they get. And and they have control of that meter from the perspective of if they have a lot of issues, a lot of work that needs to get done, they they know because we're very upfront. We charge for our time. If if you're emailing us, if you're calling us, even if you want us to come to your office versus you coming to our office. Our time is is our is our most valuable asset. So you tell us how you want it to use it and and we'll we'll do accordingly. So I I think that just setting that expectation from the beginning when we do our plan presentation, again, we're we're presuming they want to continue on. And we ask them, you know, would you like us to reach out to you in six months or a year or whatever? And and again, it's they're in control that.
1: I, I just want to follow up. So like, so you'll, you'll routinely ask them, like, when do they want to come in again? You're not necessarily like saying Hey, you have to work with us. You know, you have to do a renewal every year or you have to come back every time period of X. Like you're, you're, you're not forcing them to do it. They are just trying to set an expectation. Hey, we'll continue to be here when you need us. And, and, and they come back.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That is the case, we do not have any requirements as it relates to time or ongoing. They can say, "Hey, thanks, but no, thanks," and that's their right. The engagement doesn't go any further than what we originally did in the plan so but you know this is probably one of the areas we've been weakest in tracking, but we're just starting to we, we now have a person on staff that that's that's one of their responsibilities, Lydia, who has been off the charts for us especially with excel in being able to identify some of our metrics that we weren't keeping as tight a track of and now we are but yeah we've 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 really been fortunate that there's been that value proposition that they've been able to clearly understand to see the benefit of of an ongoing relationship and and so we typically see you know our core level 1 level 2 level 3 type clients uh, once a year is a pretty normal cadence. Interesting.
1: I guess I was going to ask around that as well is is sort of what the cadence looks like. So you know you said like 75% are are recurring clients but I'm presuming like that that doesn't necessarily mean all the people you saw that were recurring in 2017 were people you actually had just done work for in 2016 as well. Those those could have been people who came back 2 years later or 3 years later or 4 years later but They're in your roster because you've been doing this for a while. So you've now got a pretty wide base of people who may come back to you at any particular time looking for more service and support.
2: Right. Or 15 years, (laughs) meaning we have we have clients. I was just talking to one last week that we started working with in 2003 and they have been regular Ever since, and they've moved twice since then. They now don't live in in Illinois, but we continue to to, to serve them from their their soon to be retiring location. We have, and again, that's a, a metric that we're we're trying to get more intentional of tracking is of those initial clients. So, if we have, let's say, seventy. Or so new clients in a given year, what percentage of those become recurring? And our desire would be—I don't know—that I would say a hundred percent, because some of them truly just have a single issue and and really are just looking for an answer. And there might be a, a couple of different things we need to do to help get them to that answer. But that that really scratches their itch, and we're fine with that. But I would say a good two thirds of those we feel would get the greatest value from our service, having a regular ongoing relationship. And I think we're, we're fairly successful, but room for improvement of, of conveying that.
1: So I'm, I'm fascinated by just the framing that you have that you assume most of these clients who come to you on an hourly basis still want to be long-term clients. They just want to be charged in a, in a different way. I mean, I, I, to me, what you're articulating is essentially like a a certain kind of of niche business. And, you know, people who listen to the podcast regularly know I love to talk about niches. But like, I mean to me, it really is. There's there's kind of a, a framing here of a niche business of there are people who want to pay for advice on an ongoing relationship, are comfortable paying for an advisor, or they don't mind, you know, paying for the value of what they're receiving. They just want to have a version where they're in complete control about exactly how many hours they're engaging for, which a lot of us don't do, right? Like if you're in an AUM model, you know, your billing is based on your assets, regardless of how much time you use. A lot of our advisors even that do retainer-based structures, you know, here's what you got to pay for. It's up to you to use the hours effectively to get value out of it. And obviously the advisor wants the client to do that because that means they tend to retain, but like, You know, the retainer structure says, here's the cost. Now you should, you got to use me to make sure you get the value. Whereas you have that flipped around a little to say, no, no, you're in full control, but you've got financial needs and complexity and you may need help from time to time. And we're here and we'll simply bill you for whatever time you use. And it's your call about when you want to use us and how much.
2: Yeah. 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 And it really is that simple. And just like any good advisory firm, We are trying to, we are building that trust so that when the client says, hey, do you you think it would be good to meet in a year? And what would we be talking about? We can have a, a good, honest conversation of, you know, actually, I think you're in good shape. Let's maybe push it out to 18 months or absolutely. And this is why, or this tax law change is, is, is coming down the pike and we see it affecting some of the decisions that you had made prior that, you know, you you might be making some different changes or decisions now. And, and, and just like any, you know, relationship built on trust, you know, yeah, there's a cost there, but it's no different from a law firm. It's no different from a CPA practice. And if you have that trust established, the hourly rate is is acceptable.
1: Yeah. So can you talk to us a little bit about like what what these engagements look like? Like I'm looking at this, and again, you've got these kind of level one through level four in particular. The hourly rate is the same, but it's a different scope of hours from you know roughly 10 up to 40, depending on on complexity level, which is kind of the the breadth and the amount of planning stuff that you have to do. Now, when when you go through this with clients, like is the end result still basically like are you producing the classic comprehensive financial plan for a client and that's what you build towards and it just so happens that Based on the complexity, you know about how long it's going to take to build a plan. So, you know, simpler plans are level one and complex plans are level four and you bill for the time accordingly. Like, does this all build up to producing and delivering financial plans and using traditional financial planning software to create them? Or does your end result and output look a little bit different in these kinds of hourly engagements?
2: Yeah, I would say from from a level one to a level four, there's a, there's a pretty... Similar deliverable. We use eMoney as our planning software. Uh, prior to that, we used Navaplan Extended. So you could probably guess we, we prefer the cash flow approach as opposed to the goals based. Though so there's a, obviously a tremendous amount of goals discussion in, in our engagement, but our clients tend to like the, the, the cash flow based planning and we are more comfortable in that world. So,
1: what led you from Navaplan Extended to, to eMoney Advisor?
2: You know the primary reason Navaplan had been acquired I think twice, and we were on the windows based platform they had been promising to move to the online platform and to have a good transition of of those using the windows based so we were probably one of their earliest adopters of the transition and we 'll just say it wasn 't quite what we had hoped and
1: uh, a complaint I heard from a few users at the time that you know the some of the some of the depth on the cash flow planning elements were not there in the at least the initial online version during the during the switchover and and given that Navaplan's well Navaplan's roots going back twenty plus years was like they were the in depth cash flow based planning software. Unfortunately, when the cloud version didn't quite have all of those tools, there were people who were not happy yeah. and made some switches. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess you were you were in that camp, we, unfortunately. We were
2: we actually did try it for a while and and we, we came across eMoney because we were looking for a little bit simpler solution for we were we we're about to to launch a next gen oriented Nava plan it was. I mean, we we work on planning software every day, most of every day. So we're, we become a person and, and and know all the workarounds and all the issues, and and the help desk gets to know us very well in the in the front as we're trying to figure out how how to create what we want to create. So, and that was the case with NavaPlan. but when we, when we were looking at eMoney, we realized actually they've already intuitively addressed a lot of the issues that we were having with Navaplan, and it had the scalability that I could work with my most complex client and we could work with the simplest of, of clients. So that was, that was why we made the switch. Interesting. So,
1: so you're still doing like a classic gather financial planning data, put it into e-money, produce a plan, deliver a plan like is is that ultimately what this builds towards?
2: Yeah, ultimately, but we we look at at plans as organic as opposed to kind of a fixed this is this is the next 40 years of your life because as as I I know most planners would attest, you know, the next day it's obsolete. So we're, we're really trying to focus on that reality with the client to say this is a, an iterative process, an organic process so that as we see the ups and downs of your life and as your goals change and your situation changes positively or negatively, we can continue to see, are we still on the overall trage- trajectory to accomplish the, the, the objectives and goals that you want to accomplish? So, you know, back in the day, I used to basically charge by the pound, it felt like, as it related to the delivery of plans. And now it's, 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 all, it's nearly nothing. I mean, it's almost all digital in their vaults and, you know, they can go on since most of their accounts are linked and, and get updated perspective on their plans when they like. And then we meet together periodically to, to make sure everything's fresh and see what goals have changed, et cetera.
1: And I guess part of that is just the reality that when you're I mean, when you're working with clients where, you know, as you said, like your your largest client, you build something like eighty-five to ninety thousand dollars of of planning fees. I mean, I I get it, that's sort of the the most extreme client, but you've got a level five here that starts at sixteen thousand dollars for the planning work. Like you're you're getting into some complex stuff. So I yeah. guess that that's that in and of itself kind of necessitates just more robust cash flow based planning tools because that's literally where you're getting into the details to try to show
2: and generate value. Yeah. Is that I, characterization. Yeah, for for sure. Though as you can imagine, you know, our probably our average net worth of a level five client is north of twenty million dollars. So they're not scratching their heads and and st- they're not staying up at night wondering, you know, where am I going to eat my ma- my next meal? Am I going to be right, okay? Right. That's not they're, the they're, issue.
1: They're used to paying professionals who often cost $100 of hundreds of dollars an hour to do various work things, so they're paying you a couple hundred dollars an hour to do various work things. <laughs> right. I I've got to ask as an extension of that, though, you know, when you do come back to rates like $400 an hour, particularly for Clients that are that affluent and have, you know, lots of choices about professionals they can hire and they can afford a lot of people to, to, to do whatever it is that they, that they need done. Like, does the conversation ever come up with those clients of like, I I guess either a, you know, geez, Mark, you, you, you cost as much as my attorney or my accountant or, or just like, why would I, like, why would I hire you to do all my business planning work when I could just pay a attorney or a CPA?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And the Response that I've heard from our clients to that, you know, who, who likes to play pay. It? I mean, I just had somebody out to fix the ice maker on a refrigerator, and it cost two hundred seventy dollars to do, you know, thirty five minutes of work. So uh-huh. that was a painful check to write, you know, for an ice maker. But you know, nobody likes to pay for service unless you feel you're getting value for that service, and. I think that's where our our level five clients are especially seeing the the translation for them. You know, the client that I I build so much for ten years ago I probably billed two or three thousand dollars to. Why? There was a very narrow focus that they wanted to start. It was a very private person, but he was in a very illiquid situation. And even though he, he's actually a very well-known person nationally, he has a completely illiquid balance sheet and wasn't planning on having a liquidity event anytime soon and could not find advice. It just wasn't out there.
1: Right. Because anybody he would have gone to for advice, even a fee only context would have said... Sure, I'm happy to give you advice. My minimum is X hundred thousand dollars or X million dollars. For which he says, "No, no, no, my, I've got the net worth, but it's a liquid. Like there's, I can pay you, but there's no assets to give you."
2: Exactly, exactly. And, and, and that's part of the heart of what we're trying to address here is we use this term internally. We're here to serve the underserved and the unserved. And to, to some, they would think, Oh, that's, you know, people at a poverty level or whatever. Well, it's, 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 it's a different perspective from, from our vantage point. There are people who are more Do it yourself oriented that like to retain that control, but get to a point where they understand that things are getting just too complex for them to understand how everything works together. And that is the value add. That's probably as much as anything else a key perspective that we bring to our clients is they're trying to make decision X. Well, how does it affect A, B, Y, Z? And that's, I mean, that's planning. And so, that's where we get very little pushback when they get our bills because they've seen the value that they're getting on the other end, which is 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 the advice and you know they we could easily translate up oh look how many how much we saved in taxes or improve your your estate plan or you know reduce your cost or premium on x or y. We just don't go down that road it's just that to me is a Is a losing game. Interesting,
1: and and so, yeah. Like it's you to me. One of the things I've I've long pounded the table for around sort of this emergence of both frankly both hourly and retainer models is this idea that we're we get to open up new markets who just aren't served particularly well by traditional advisory models, and it's not necessarily about going you know sort of to less affluent clientele, although that's an option. It can be high-income young professionals who have a lot of debt, but also have a lot of income and could easily have the financial wherewithal to pay for advice, but they don't need a product right now, and they don't have any assets to manage because they're still paying off student loan debt, but they're doctors or lawyers making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, or business owners who have significant financial wherewithal but are illiquid, and they don't mind paying for advice, but they have to actually just pay for fee-for-service advice because they don't fit any other model, but they can do hourly or retainer or something to that effect. Like to me, that's that's the I know some advisors out there, and you know, no offense to them, but like they're 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 primarily trying to use these hourly or retainer models to compete against the AUM model and say like, hey, here's a like I'll, I'll, I'll just charge you cheaper because I'm not getting paid all this money for a portfolio that we're not doing much on. But to me, the like the 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 bigger opportunity is for all those folks that just they would happily pay for advice, but they just can't and won't do it in an AUM basis or a product basis because they don't have the available assets or they don't need to buy a product or they're just not willing to hand them over. But they will pay for fee-for-service advice if you just give them a fee for service option.
2: Yeah. I know, absolutely. Though when you when you say if you give them the option, I, I'm actually personally not a big fan of of mixing service models. So okay. there are some that say, you know, they they basically will give you a menu. Oh, you want to do hourly? We can do hourly. You want to do a retainer? We can do a retainer. You want to do an asset management? What I have observed as I've observed the industry over the last twenty plus years is. Those that try to be everything are nothing. you know you've talked about that term a niche. I think that translates also to the the way you're paid because an hourly person has to be very conscientious of how they spend their time. An AUM person, less so because they got the leverage of an assets Model. So, when when I used to be in the RIA world, in the AUM world, prior to starting Timothy Financial, if I got a golf invitation from a client, I was all over that. Nowadays, you know, four hundred dollars an hour, five hour round. I have to make the decision: is this worth two thousand dollars of my time? And mm. and it just changes the whole complexity as to how you think about how you're spending your day now i don't translate that into you know my family time or my because that time is priceless and in my my you know when i volunteer and whatever but but my work day i do translate my time into an actual cost whether it's lunches or golf or anything that's not doing work what's the value proposition and, and when you mix models you 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 mix that all up and you tend to be much less efficient in the way you do business. And frankly, I have an abundance mentality. There's plenty of work out there for the AUM model. There's plenty of work out there for the retainer model. And to me, you know, you have that iceberg image, I think hourly, I mean there's there's almost no one on a relative scale doing it. And the the, the need that it could meet is is Absolutely, I mean it eclipses the other two models by a factor from yeah. from my vantage point.
1: Well, yeah, because I mean we ran numbers for this on the site at at one point, but you know, it like there's something like a hundred hundred and ten million households in in the U.S. Barely a third of them are have at least a hundred thousand dollars of investable assets outside of their primary residence. Like people, you at least potentially could work with. A big chunk of those are. Have the money, but it's tied up in their 401k plan. So you're not gonna be managing it anytime soon. A big portion of those are either do-it-yourselfers or you know, maybe validators, like they would pay ad hoc for advice, but they're not going to delegate assets and hand them over to anybody. And so by the time you slice through all those different pieces, you get down to there, there's there's probably only like seven or eight million households in the US. Who, who can actually do this? Uh, like who, who could actually delegate assets to an AUM advisor and there's something like three hundred thousand financial advisors give or take a little so if you if you if you just start doing the math, like there's only about 20 to 25 clients, AUM clients for each of us across all advice like we are we are so overlapping. there's actually only about 20 to 25 clients per advisor when you go through that math. Now we stay in business because even though we all like to say we have all of our clients assets many of us do not actually have all of our clients <laughs> assets so the fact that like affluent people split up between multiple advisors means they keep five advisors in business at once or or probably at least two or three and and so we can all have enough clients when we're carving out that base but like we're we're all going after the same hyper narrow group and leaving you know literally like 90% of the marketplace Unserved. It's not that the AUM model is a bad way to serve the people who have piles of money and want to have it managed while getting comprehensive advice, but but like most of the pie ends out being unserved. And granted, some segment of them just don't have the financial wherewithal to to pay us by any means. They just don't have income or assets or any financial ability to pay for advice. But like you know, there's still tens of millions of households who have some level of affluence and some ability to pay, but they just don't have liquid assets available and an interest in des- and an interest in delegating them, and so we we exclude all those with AUM models and product models, and you open all of that up with the kind of hourly model that you're talking about.
2: Well, and even in your math, it it presumes the three or four hundred thousand in the industry are all equal, right. <laughs> and I you know in 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 my world we get. Uh, a fair amount of business from other advisors we position ourselves as a gracious out so you know their mm. their their a client has referred you know a neighbor or a friend or a family member and you know the advisors all excited this is my a client so he probably hangs out with a people Gets the questionnaire, goes, oh no, you know, what am I going to do with this person? Or has a conversation with a person, and the questionnaire looks fantastic, but they're like, oh, and I'm looking for a fee for service type of model, which they don't do. So what what happens often is before there were any options, most often they would serve the client anyway, and it would be a lose lose. The client is is, is kind of. You know, square peg in a round hole. They know it. The advisor, you know, is just trying to make the A client happy because he wants to serve his friend and it doesn't go out well. So, You know, we have become that gracious out. If you run into those C clients that really have no no business, whether they're below your minimum or even they're you're at or above, but aren't looking for your service model, that there's another option that saves face, (laughs) but doesn't mess up your business, which we all you know can be prone to.
1: Yeah, and you we had Anna Sargunina on the on the podcast in the past as well. She was episode forty nine and. You know, she similarly has a a pretty sizable hourly practice, and and I know one of the themes that she talked about as well is a, a non-trivial portion of her growth in clients and revenue simply came from referrals from other advisors. I, I love your framing for it that like we're, we're your gracious out on on those awkward you know referred in client situations, but I mean it's really true. Like there are there are clients that are just not a good fit, and I think a lot of us tend to ha- tend to try to you have this scarcity mentality like anybody i can possibly get a chance at i got i got to do business with them whatever i can do even if it's not really a good fit and usually you end up regretting that later but part of it is just cuz sometimes you're not sure where to re- like where else to refer that client i mean i know a lot of advisors that take non-ideal clients because the justification they use right or wrong is well i know there's so many other bad advisors out there and I don't I don't want to just turn them away and like let them be thrown to the wolves for whoever can go after them. And, you know, you you make the the good and powerful point here that like it's not either or you must serve them yourself, even if they're a bad fit or throw them back to the wolves. Like there is a third option, which is just make a professional referral to a colleague, to another advisor that, you know, actually does good work. and. Yeah. You know, that's, as you know, like that's how you built some of your business. That's how Anna built some of her business. I know for a lot of our XY planning network advisors, that's how they're building their businesses. They say, you know, we specialize in working with Gen X and Gen Y clients. And they go to work, they go to talk to large RIAs in their area who tend to work with affluent retirees because that's where the AUM model focuses. And they just say, look, when you, you know, when you get those referrals of people who are young and not a good fit, like, you don't have to serve them as a bad fit or turn them away. Just refer them over to me. That's all I do. I'm not even in competition with you, and and that to me is the fascinating thing about sort of these these different niche models in general. Like we're really not in competition with each other. We just serve different no. types of clientele.
2: Exactly. No, I could could not agree with you more.
1: So so all that being said, like I've I've got to ask from the from the flip side. Then you know we're we're like. We're sort of mutually talking up the, the virtues and market opportunity of, of the hourly model or fee for service models in, in general. So, you know, you've been doing this for almost 18 years now in your firm. You know, you, you built a great sizable firm, but you're still one of the largest I've ever seen in our industry doing this. I don't know any others offhand who are doing more than a million dollars of revenue. You know Garrett Ply Network's been championing this for also about seventeen or eighteen years i think I think she got started right around two thousand as well so why hasn't this caught on more like why aren't there thousands of hourly practices if there's so much opportunity in the hourly and fee for service space <sighs>
2: Yeah, I honestly, I wish there was. There's so much opportunity out there, so much need. And I mean, we're in a town of 50,000. And obviously, we're near a, a big city. But, you know, we're, we're not even scratching the surface of our county much less the city or or the state and so there's there's plenty of room but as as the reason i i've i've had a lot of conversations with different hourly people and a couple of things that i've identified one is often they're undercapitalized so they they go into this with kind of a shoestring budget, work out of their home, and you know basically trying to cut corners in order to create a good profit margin, which I get. but it, it doesn't create the image that I would want of a good, you know I don't want to be a well, let me see if this works, client. <laughs> you know I, I want to go into a firm where I'm like, this is a firm that's going to be around. For the rest of my life, which is what I'm looking for. So undercapitalized is one thing. We already touched on the underpriced feel like those that are are charging 150 or 180 an hour. you know I, as I said, I, I don't think they, they understand or appreciate their own value and if they're working, Like most of the hourly practitioners that I know are working where they're working Saturdays or working Sunday mornings, they're working 12 hour days during the, you, you've got to ask yourself the question. There doesn't seem to be a demand issue here. So why not up your price? You're underpricing your service. And when you ask them about close rate, they're going to say, we close almost everybody. And okay, well, you know, but you're going to burn yourself out, which is another point. You know, if, 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 if our poster children for for hourly are these burned out solo practitioners, yeah. who would want to do this? <laughs> you know, it doesn't paint a very good picture. Which actually leads to you know another point, which is that whole stay solo. I I would say that it is difficult for any advisor, hourly retainer, AUM to do things solo. It's possible, certainly, and I think AUM probably has the best chance or having some component of AUM has the best chance if you want to stay solo, hourly, you would really have to charge a, you know, that $400 an hour type of rate in order to make a, a good living. But, but one last point I wanted to make on this, this whole why it hasn't caught on is I think that a lot of, and this will, this will sound funny, but I think a lot of hourly practitioners don't track their own time. <laughs> which can be a little bit of a, of, of a head scratcher, but I literally track my entire day, whether it's billable or non-billable. Do you, do
1: you use software for that? Or are you just particularly studious about like recording things in a spreadsheet? How, how do you actually track your time?
2: Yeah. We use QuickBooks Enterprise as our software and it has timesheets and you know it's the same thing we use for our billing so that we don't have to do d- double entry and there are software, online softwares out there that are you can sync to QuickBooks so that it I mean, it's really very easy. We do not find hardly any difficulty to keep track of our day-to-day work.
1: You make an interesting point in there as well, that just at the most basic level, like if you're I think this is a good message for any advisor. If you're if you're feeling too busy in your practice and and overwhelmed by all the stuff that's that's going on and clients are coming in, like that's a nice problem to have, but but you're feeling overwhelmed, like the solution isn't hard. It just means you're undercharging. Raise your fees. Just raise your raise your price. Like wor- wor- worst case scenario. <laughs> that's it. A few people will go away, everyone else will pay more, and you'll probably still make more money while doing less work.
2: Well, and it's not a probably. I mean, I started at 150 an hour myself back in 2000. And I remember one year I had a hundred percent close rate. I'm yeah, like,
1: that's, <laughs> that's actually not a good thing from a business <laughs> perspective.
2: That's not a good thing. No, exactly, exactly. So I, you know, I so I went from one fifty to one eighty to one ninety five, and then finally I kind of broke the two hundred mark. And so every three to four years, we we adjust our rates accordingly, but we track our close rate to make sure that we're, you know, we're we're still suitable and reasonable.
1: And I I think that's an interesting dynamic just to say, like for all of you who are not you know rigorously tracking close rates. And and I love how you do it, Mark, because it really should be three tiers. One is just the number of leads or inquiries, just like the volume of inbound. Number two is how many of them were actually qualified to do business with you. And then number three is how many of them actually became clients. So you can calculate a final conversion rate from qualified prospects to actual clients. And, you know, if you're Close rates are lower than twenty or thirty percent. You you've got a problem, something about how you're conveying or communicating your services. You most advisors I know are are frankly probably in the thirty to fifty percent range, and it tends to be higher on referrals because they already come in with a level of trust, so it's usually an easier closing process. But then at the other end of the spectrum, like if your close rates are materially higher than eighty percent and sustaining there, and especially if you're above ninety percent. Like you can get eighty percent with really targeted marketing. If you're getting above ninety percent, you just don't charge enough. It it should not be that easy for everybody <laughs> exactly. to say yes.
2: Right. Right. And now if if you have capacity, okay, well that's fine. And if you if 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 there's other, you know, success metrics that are more important to you, like number of, of people served and you have the capacity and can do the life balance that you want to to accomplish, that's that's definitely workable. But we've found that those two together have really helped us keep a balance to to our cost structure.
1: You know, you you talked about the the fact that you've got this 75% of, of clients who are recurring revenue, which you know, on a on a one point four million dollar gross means like a million dollars of your revenue was just people you've already worked with who, who are coming back, which is which is an amazing thing. But right, but obviously like it takes some level of time and number of clients you serve cumulatively over time just to get to the point where there's enough people to come back and pay for your services again to build that kind of recurring base. So I'm 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 curious if you can take us back to the beginning when you first launched the firm. Like, what did that look like? What were you coming out from? You know, like, what was in your head about how this was going to go? Like, what what were you aiming to build when you first did this in 2000 in a world where, I mean, as we talked about even today, there are not that many hourly planners, but back then, like. "Quote unquote, nobody did like virtually nobody was doing this. So, what was go like? What was going on back at the time? What was going through your head at the time in in launching an hourly firm in 2000?
2: Yeah, well i I was working at a, a large RA, one of the largest in the country, fee only, fantastic firm. Had a great experience. Was on a great track there, but probably about halfway into my time with them i was there for for 6 years what i saw was we kept getting these calls and out of 10 inquiry calls only about 2 of them actually were qualified and the other 8 weren't and as i started to assess the other 8 roughly about half of them i would call middle market you know they earn household income of 80 to maybe 150,000 a year And the other half were millionaire next door, so they were more do-it-yourself oriented. That accumulated assets, and as we explained our model of AUM and retainer, which is the the way our firm worked, they just said, "Well, I'm just really looking for the planning, or I've got my money in the 401k. I just need, you know, if you can just give me advice on that, great." And you know, like any good business, we knew what we wanted to work with high income, high net worth delegators. And that's, you know, that's, that's pretty classic. And we had a minimum of a million dollars. We had a minimum financial planning fee and, and it really just didn't make sense for them. And so typically the next question was, so who Mm -hmm. do you recommend then (laughs) who out there does this? Mm -hmm. And that was, that led me on this search for someone who I could refer these people to because we weren't going to serve them. And and what I found was, as as you alluded to, there there just really wasn't anyone out there that wanted to work with these people. And I frankly couldn't figure out how it could be done. I I just didn't know the industry well enough. And it was reading actually an, an article in May of 2000 about Cheryl Garrett and the hourly. It was like, duh, <laughs> you know, you look around and what are the two other professions that are, are in our orbit, CPAs and and attorneys, and how do they make a living? They charge for their time. And so after spending probably three or four months wrestling with the decision of why would I leave a, a great firm that I'm doing very well at with clients that I love, you know with a wife and two kids and and another one coming to to go into that uncertainty but you know as i as i sought advice from people i trusted they just said the need's so big, would you know? We we just so suggest you you give it a shot, and and my firm was so gracious and saying, hey, if it doesn't work out, you know, the door's open. They were just really,
1: oh, this crazy. is great. Mark's going to go out on his own, and then when it doesn't work out, he'll come back and he'll stay with us forever.
2: <laughs> well, I, and frankly, there's probably a little bit, and more than a little bit of that in my own mind because I, I didn't, I, I distinctly remember that first day. And I had no clients because I left all my clients at my old firm. And I went to a, an office depot to pick up some office supplies. And I had this like weight that I could not identify. And I realized I was feeling <laughs> guilty for not being in my office. And it was the first time I realized... I'm self-employed. <laughs> yeah, so it was interesting. But then I also learned that there's no such thing as paid vacations and things like that. So there's other aspects that I came to learn. But, you know, that was really the the, the, the starting point back in 2000. And, you know, I had a three-year business plan, accomplished year two in, in year one. And I blew out year three goal in year three. Two. And that's when I hired my first person, Chris, who still works with me to this day. And, and that kind of started the journey. And it's, it's, and, and, and I will point out, you know, I mentioned Chris, who, who actually works remotely for us out of Arizona. He's been fantastic. He works with a lot of our level four clients. That's kind of his sweet spot. And then uh, Han Tossig, one of my partners, she supports me with level five clients. There's just a lot of work to do with those. And then we've got Kara who works with level one through level three. She came from Mercer, is just excellent planner, just heart of gold and just can't say enough about the team. And then we brought on Michael. And Michael joined us only about three years ago. And he is an absolute rock star. And he is now working, in fact, last year I, I got a call from somebody out of state, level five, extremely high net worth, extreme complexities. Now probably our second largest client. And I said, you know, Michael, I'm 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 pretty booked out. Why don't you, why don't you take this one? And so when the client flew in, Michael met with him and he became a client and he's been working with him and now he's working with other level five. So that's really helped free me up because I felt like I was becoming the pinch point of our firm and now he has brought so much to the table. And then Lydia most recently is just a godsend. We didn't, we needed somebody to help fill all these gaps that we had. And then we found other things that she could do that we didn't even know she could do. Like she's an absolute Excel whiz and has created some metrics and key metric tracking that is is I've never seen anything like it. So great, great team. And then Becky, she just makes sure that we're we're sane and and keeping it all together.
1: Oh, always good to have someone keeping just all the operations and systems sure, together. For sure. So how do like having employee advisors work in an in an hourly practice like yours? You know, in 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 the AUM model, at least historically. You know, if advisors manage clients, they got basically a share of the revenue. You know, you get some some percentage of their AUM billing. Some firms I know now are are converting towards more of a salary plus bonus structure, but at least historically it was sort of a revenue sharing kind of model. So do you do a similar structure in an hourly practice? Like, hey, you know, the the firm charges 280 dollars an hour you get x dollars of it for servicing the clients and then the the rest goes to the firm to cover staff and overhead and all the rest like is it a a similar sort of split or do you just pay advisors a salary to be working in the firm and then it's up to you to make sure they've got enough billable hours to make the firm profitable like how do you how do you structure this in an hourly environment?
2: Yeah, it's it's an ever evolving area for us and we're always trying to to tweak it. So for, for those who are new, obviously they they, they they don't come with business. They can't kind of start right off and do significant billable work for us. And so it's salary and bonus. And then when they hit a certain threshold, as far as billable hours is concerned, which is somewhere in the eight to seven to 800 hours range, then we transition to more of a percentage of your hours billed. So what you the number of build hours you did the prior year effectively sets your salary for the coming year. And then we also have a, a bonus structure. And then on top of that, I'm very big into, into having good benefits. And so we've got some. I feel very competitive benefits and we we took a page out of Angie's book her 4P's and in fact we took a lot of advice from her 4P's one of them being we don't have a vacation policy they can take vacation whenever they want because they know their responsibility they know you know where they fit in the team and we do truly work as a team it is it is such a joy to work with these these individuals where we're all kind of focused on the vision and the mission of what we're about and yeah, it's it's a great environment.
1: So as you're looking at all these advisors on the uh, on the firm now, you know, a lot of mouths to feed, as it were. Particularly since you mentioned, you also have a spouse and several kids at home, so lots and lots <laughs> of, of mouths to feed. Like, sure. Yeah. What is just what is marketing and new client development look like for you? Like where where do you where are you getting clients, particularly in people that pay? $280 to $400 an hour. I mean, I get, I get that they're looking at the website and you've got a lot of information there and that helps screen some of them out. So only the good ones come through, but like you still have to get people with money to go to your website. <laughs> so that all that works. Like where does, where does all this business come from for you?
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, it, it, it kind of cracks me up to hear other advisors kind of just be so shocked at 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 charging two hundred and eighty dollars an hour, four hundred dollars an hour because if you actually do the math as to what most advisors charge out there they're they're not that far off. In fact, oftentimes on a per hour basis, they're charging far in excess what we're doing and maybe or maybe not doing the same or less or more work. And so ours is actually just scalable relative to the complexity and the need of the client. So we don't have the situation where we have the C client that takes so much time, but we're getting so little revenue or vice versa, just kind of self-manages itself. But back to your, your kind of core question, where do we get our business? I mentioned earlier, other financial advisors, a big part of that. We get clients from all over the country, largely through our NAFTA connections, advisors that we've gotten to know that don't in their area, Austin, Texas or Hawaii or whatever, have an hourly option that either at all or that they they feel uh, comfortable with. And so we we provide a, a gracious out as we talked about earlier. NAFA is a is a great resource for us as people do like the, do their the searches. NAPFA
1: website or other NAPFA advisors or, or- both.
2: Yes, yes, both, and other professionals c p a s attorneys kind of t- typical and it it took a little while, but they actually really get our value they because they they charge the same way, and especially when we're working collaboratively, I just had a meeting with with a client. His CPA and myself as we were working through a business transition. And it's just so great to be able to work interactively with the advisory team, you know, where I'm helping on the personal side, they're helping with the business. And, and it's just, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to behold from my vantage point. But existing clients is obviously an area that actually we have failed in, I would say, meaning we don't often ask our clients, cardinal sin. I know, Hey, you know, we're taking more clients. Feel free to let us know. We have a, we have extremely high satisfaction. We, we do a satisfaction survey. Our average is 4.85 out of five. So we, you know, we get, we get good reviews from our clients, but then we don't ask them, Hey, <laughs> you know, do you have anyone that you think might benefit? And so that's just, it's just not our nature. We're not salesy. In fact, I think we've gone too far the wrong direction because of, you know, the insurance salesman or whatever, that perception. I think we've, we've taken it to the, the too far of an extreme because we love what we do. We highly value what we do. We feel it's of value to so many people out there. And so we're just literally this year saying we've got to get the word out. And and we need to be more intentional with our clients, so we're tracking that metric to help increase that percentage. But that's you know I would say by and large our sources of clients are no different from you know most fee only firms. Now,
1: what did it what did it look like when you got started? Because right? you said your your growth got going faster, right? but like when you're getting started, you don't have this big network of other. You know, attorneys and accountants to refer you to. You don't have a network of other NAPFA advisors that that you've gotten to know yet. You know, even just like the internet was not as big back then, so I, I don't I don't think you were getting as much off like NAPFA find an advisor referrals. So you granted some of the opportunities maybe are are different in today's environment than they were when when you got started. But like, how did you get going in the first year or two? Just to Get the clients going to get the volume going.
2: Yeah, it, it, it was for sure. Other advisors, I, I spent a lot of time going door to door, getting their permission. It wasn't just a, a literal knock on the door; we were, were literally uh, going door to door. No, no. Okay. But yeah, no, these were these are almost exclusively NAFA advisors in Chicagoland area that I was just saying, can I meet with you to tell you my story? And, you know, NAFA advisors are so generous with their time. And I try to reciprocate too as a NAFA advisor. And that led to a great number of opportunities to connect with people and for them to see, Oh yeah, this is somebody that might fit. And so that was a big source for me.
1: So did you like, did you find almost all of them were open to it or was this still like you would meet with 10 advisors and you know, eight were polite, but that was that. And then one or two of them actually gave you some business, but you still had to like get eight no's to get two yeses to, to refer like how, how, how quickly did that open up for you?
2: Yeah, I would say probably you know out of out of ten, maybe five or six polite. You know yeah. that's nice. Wow, that's awesome. Mark, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Pat you on the head. Yeah, yeah, and and two that were politely suspicious because <laughs>
1: you're really gonna go AUM once you get the mark.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And they, I, we're not going to refer our, you know, kids of clients who, you know, then we lose that succession dollar. So there was, there was that. And, and what I found was, was by being consistent from day one. This is how I do business. This is what I'm all about. If I wanted to be AUM, I would stay where I was. And when they saw, wow, he's actually growing and, you know, and, and we're hearing word that he's, he's doing a good job. You know, the two that were, Hey, this is great. We have people that, you know, don't fit us and, you know, it sounds like you could help them, you know, would grow to four. And then it's, it's, you know, word has has gotten out from there. Interesting.
1: So for an advisor that wants to get started or, or go down this path today, is that basically still what you tell them? like the the best way to get started in a fee for service business is just go go talk to the AUM advisors in your area who aren't going to serve these clients anyways, and just oh, as you said, like tell your story and ask ask for a referral or hope some referrals come.
2: Well, I mean, that's 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 one avenue. You'll also find just from the natural conversations of, hey, what do you do for a living? Oh, I I do financial planning by the hour. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that generates conversations and you'll get opportunities just in your community. So again, it's, it's, it's just like any, any model out there, you have to have multiple lines in the water in order to, to get that opportunity. It's, it's not an easy way of doing business. I, I, I'm not going to, to try to paint a Pollyannish picture especially as a solo. I, I, I think that it's a difficult road as a solo. It can be done. It can be done profitably if you want just kind of that more of that lifestyle, as long as you apply some of these other things that we talked about to avoid burnout and to make it profitable. But where I think the opportunities are unlimited is if you grow practice by intentionally bringing on a players, you know, top grade people, which I feel we have here and we're continuing to seek out and you let them run. You know, Michael is three years out of college, CFP, working with level five clients. He's a partner here at the firm. You get good people and you let them succeed. They'll succeed. And So I I think there's just great opportunity for this model. I'm really excited about its future, but I think it's going to be a slow evolution, maybe due to pressures in the other ways of doing business, maybe the popularity and and the the supply demand issue. Who knows? But um, I I think there's room for everyone.
1: So where does it go for you from here? Like, what's the what's the future of the firm you know you're you're still a relatively young guy you've got some time left in the business like what's your what's your vision about where the the firm goes from here
2: i get lesser and they get bigger and that's that's kind of my goal so you know you look at like a roy Ballantyne who i think has done such a great job of Really releasing the control of his firm over time to key people and then figuring out, you know, how can I add unique value? to the firm. You know, what can I bring that maybe nobody else can bring to this firm? So that's that's really my desire for Timothy Financial is to grow it not for growth sake, not for revenue sake, not for financial sake, but because there's so much need out there and and I think that our model can meet such a a massive need out there in so many different ways. So that's that's really kind of a key on the on the, my business and the business my partners and I have. And then personally, I mean I like to work. I love what I do. I love every coming in every Monday. And so I don't see a natural like I'm gonna no longer do this. Yeah, you know, I'd love to be more part and I, I've tried already through NAPFA to be part of the industry and some of the change and and move the industry towards a self-regulated profession. That's my heartbeat. You know, I, I'm i active with with Jeff Brown and and some of the people at NAFa to help kind of push towards that, and very excited about that. But that's going to be a long haul. And I'm 47. I've got I've got some some tread left on so the tire.
1: One other question I've I've got to ask about this, you know, maybe tied in directly to some of what you said about building the firm bigger and and beyond you. But you know, you're you're Mark Berg, founder of Timothy Financial Council. You're Mark. Berg, founder of Timothy Financial Council, not Berg Financial Council. <laughs> Timothy Financial Council. Can can you explain? Like where where did Timothy come from?
2: Yeah, well, it's 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 a little bit of a humorous slash sad story. So I, I could not think of a name for the firm. I tried everything, you know, something to describe it, but one Cardinal rule I had as I went down that path is I didn't want it to be Mark Bergen Associates or whatever kind of the typical approach because I. I've got a big enough ego (laughs) that I don't need anything else to, yeah. In in retrospect, the beauty of it is it has pointed people away from me. It's not all about me, which, you know, I wish I could say I was smart enough to have, have thought of that enough. So, what's funny is what I often do now, I thought nobody would ask me, and everyone asked me, What's Timothy? What does it stand for? And I'm in the middle of the Bible belt. So I, I usually turn the question back to them. I say, well, what do you think? And about half my clients say, well, you know, is it like a biblical reference, like the Timothy and the Bible? And then the other half say, you know, is it a... Like a grandparent or you know, a special someone. And and I, I went to a Christian college. I'm a Christian, so it would be a natural assumption, but that wasn't the reason. And yeah, I have special people that I know they are Timothy, but that wasn't the reason either. It's just my middle name. And I it was really that simple. I just thought, well, nobody's gonna ask. It's such a generic name. And it's just been funny, however. You know, I
1: I had <laughs> I had looked it up in the discussion as well, because I was kind of wondering like Are the are there any Timothy's in the Bible? And and apparently there there is a Saint Timothy. He's he's apparently the patron against stomach and intestinal disorders.
2: I'm not quite sure what you're you know, well, (laughs) you
1: know, if money is making your stomach turn, Saint Timothy Financial Council is here to help. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, there actually is a Timothy in the Bible. He was kind of a protege of the Apostle Paul. And there's actually a lot of conversation about money in the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. So again, it, it would not have been, but it wasn't intentional. That I guess is my point is I, I didn't really do it by design, but after the fact, you can say, oh yeah, well, it sounds good.
1: So as we come to the end here, you know, this is a podcast about success and and one of the things that we always talk about is just that success means different things to different people sometimes even different things to us in different stages of our own life and career so as someone who's built what i think anyone would objectively call a, a very successful hourly fee for service business you know from from your personal perspective like how do you define success at this point
2: yeah that's a great question michael and there there are components of it that are are pretty fixed so i've mentioned several times that success to us Is is lives impacted? Clients served. So I would love for the industry to change from their first question being how much how many assets do you have? (laughs) You know, are you a billion dollar? To me, that's completely irrelevant as to how many lives are impacted. That to me is so much more important just for our world. So so that will always and forever be a driving force from a success metric standpoint. Beyond that, I would say within Timothy Financial, it's really raising the next generation of planners. And it so excites me. We have a lot of young people, Michael, Carabath, Lydia, who are all in their 20s, who are doing some amazing work and working with clients of all ages, and including their own, but also those far, far older than them and making real life impacts for those clients. So really helping raise up that next generation of planners. And we don't, you know, if you ask, well, what was, you know, Michael's background? He was an accounting major and had no interest in financial planning until I approached him. And, you know, what was, what was Lydia? She had some finance, but, you know, again, th- this wasn't on her radar screen. And, you know, so you don't have to go through the program. I think, I think these new programs are great. And I think there's going to be some opportunity, but I, you can get some just really good people and train them up pretty quickly to be excellent financial planners.
1: Well, very cool. I'm. Um- excited to see how many more you get to hire and build and develop and train up as the as the firm keeps growing you know and i think the challenge for so many advisors right it's always so challenging and painful to start although as you astutely pointed out like the worst case scenario is so you can always go back to the firm you were working for before they will almost certainly take you back because there's a talent shortage <laughs> out there but you know it's it's challenging for everyone when you get started but once you get Established and clients get to know you and other advisors get to know you and and sort of the, the referral and marketing machine starts. Like it's really amazing how advisory firms compound out over time and the opportunities that you get to create for other advisors who come along in the business as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing your story on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Well, thanks for having me, Michael. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you.